0: Lord, as we enter into this week, the holiest time of the year for Christians, we ask that you would indeed grant us the ability to enter into your suffering and your resurrection joy in a new way transformed by your Holy Spirit after this time of Lent. Amen. Please be seated. So here we are at the end of the season of Lent going into Holy Week and what's also called Passion Tide. Last week we heard Jesus on Passion Sunday speaking to us and to his disciples about how he was the Father's first fruit offering, how he was the grain of wheat that must die and go to the ground so that many might live. And as we read this morning in the last collect that we said, the collect of the day, of which there were several, we read this, Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for us, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Here we are, looking at Jesus in great humility, the Son of God offering himself as the perfect sacrifice necessary for our salvation. And so, as we look at the texts today, I want us to pay attention to the three points of that collect. Number one, the point that it's out of God's tender love alone that he sends his Son, Jesus, to die for us. Number two, that he takes his, God rather, takes on himself, upon himself, as Philippians says, our nature to suffer death upon the cross. So he gives himself to us. He takes upon himself our nature and finally he asks us to walk in his way. Walk in his way. Look at the final part of that collect. It's a strange petition. At least it seems strange at first. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering. And come to share in his resurrection. And come to share in his resurrection. And so here as we enter Holy Week, we see deliberately put before us in the readings this dramatic contrast, this contrast between Jesus as a triumphal king welcomed into Jerusalem, as a conquering king would be welcomed, but then we see things shift in Jesus offering himself and God the Father offering his son as a sacrifice. How is it that this Messiah... Can be both. How is it that the Messiah can be both exalted and crushed? Now, as Christians, this has become familiar to us. But think about the paradox of that. And you'll understand why it is that last week, Jesus's, the crowd around Jesus couldn't figure this out. Right, And yet we see in today's readings that this has been God's plan from the beginning. Look with me at the Isaiah 52 text that Kate read for us this morning. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, says the Lord. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But here's the contrast right in the next verse. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You see, way back in Isaiah, we have this idea, this contrast between the king who is exalted and the servant who is crushed in the Messiah, God's chosen servant. There's plenty of evidence in Isaiah, but I'll pick one other passage for you. This is Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, where the Lord says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from the disgrace and spitting. But the Lord helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? God's chosen servant will both be struck and exalted. In last Sunday's Gospel, John chapter 12, verses 32 through 34, after telling him, after telling the crowds that he was the grain of wheat that must die. Jesus continued and said this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. But the crowd objects, saying, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And so you see them struggling with this idea that how is it that the Messiah is going to be both exalted and crushed? Nevertheless, as part of God's plan, his son will be exalted, crushed, and then exalted all the more, as we see in the Philippians passage. Nevertheless, uh, just as Isaiah foretold Jesus' birth, he foretells his death in this contrast. Jesus was exalted, yet marred. And Isaiah then introduces the reason for this, this contrast. It's for sinful mankind. And not just for Israel, but for the whole earth. Look at that first reading again. Chapter 52, verse 15. Right after what we just read. So shall he sprinkle many nations. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That's referring to sacrifice and the blood being sprinkled to cleanse. Kings shall, be shut, shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. He continues further with this description and with the punishment that deserve, is deserving for sin and the pain that this servant would take on for the sake of sinful men, for mankind, for you and I. Again, look at the first reading, chapter 53 this time, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see, Jesus is paying the price that we deserve the price that all men and women deserve for their sins, for their rebellion. Why? Why does the suffering servant agree to do this? We can understand why this system might work, but then we have to think to ourselves that the God of all creation would say yes to this. Well, today's collect tells us in that first line, it's out of tender love. Out of tender love for mankind, In general, out of tender love for you, specifically for you as an individual, out of his tender love, God chooses to endure this, this suffering, disgrace, and death. Jesus told his disciples in John's gospel, chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus proceeds to call his disciples his friends. And this act of love, this act of love and this designation as friend applies to you too, O Christian. And by it, you have been brought peace, as Isaiah says. By it, you have been healed, as Isaiah says. And while Jesus' treatment at the hands of men, some more wicked than others, is in, in cor- is in accordance with God's plan, and we see that way back at the first verse, the first part of verse 10 in Isaiah, yet for the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. The mystery here is that the Trinity, the triune God in the person of the Father, first of all, gives to a sinful world, wicked men and women, His only begotten Son, as that offering, as we talked about last week. Why would God do that, knowing that they're going to torture Him and crucify Him, again, out of His tender love? And then God, in the person of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, volunteers to fulfill that mission. Why would the son do that? Again, out of nothing but his tender love. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, our epistle reading today. We read this. Have this in mind among yourselves, says St. Paul to Christians, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is your possession in Christ, verse 6, who though... He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus knew from the beginning of time precisely what was to happen. He volunteered for the task. He wasn't tricked into it. He chose it. Jesus knows precisely what's going to go on. And he even knows it on earth before the crucifixion, right? We can look at Matthew's gospel in chapter 21. Uh, You probably are familiar with the text, the parable of the, the wicked tenants. Do you remember that parable? where the master takes this vineyard and he gives it to tenants and then he lets them run it and he sends servant after servant and they beat them up and then finally he sends his son whom they kill. Jesus understands precisely what's to happen. Look at our gospel passage. Now, I think you do have the insert so you can look it up. We we don't have the verses in the narrated version. But look at Mark 14, verse 35 and 36. And going a little further, he, that is Jesus, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And again, In verse 39, he prays the same thing. Mark doesn't record it, but he says, And again Jesus went away and prayed, saying the same words. St. Ephraim, the Syrian, who was a deacon theologian, living just 300 years after the death of Christ, writes this about this passage. He, that is Jesus, knew what he was saying to the Father and was well aware that this chalice could pass from him but he had come to drink it for everyone, a debt which the prophets and the martyrs could not pay with their debts. With their death, rather. So God not only gives himself his only son, but also gives of himself in the drinking of the chalice, the cup of torment and death and agony. What kind of God does this? Again, a God who acts out of tender love. A God who sends his Son and himself to us for our salvation. Because, as St. Ephraim says, only he could pay the debt that was owed. Again, Isaiah foretells not just Jesus' act of love, but the resulting salvation that comes from it. Look with me again at verse 10 in the first reading. So this is verse 10 of chapter 53. Yet, we read, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. But look at the second part of that verse. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. And verses 11 and 12: Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear their iniquities. Who are the offspring of the suffering servant? all who embrace this righteousness, all who embrace Him and the righteousness that He has won through the sacrifice which He has paid and He alone can pay, you and I, many that have gone before us and many who are to come. This is the great gift of God, my friends, this righteousness won and given to us by Jesus' death we are his offspring we are his sons and daughters so as we enter in to this holy week as we enter into this time of reflection on the passion particularly of jesus let us not jump right to easter this church is really good at actually attending the holy week services so i don't have to browbeat you too much but in your daily walk, embrace the agony of what Jesus went through out of love. We're not commemorating saints this week, right? You saw that in the bulletin, perhaps under the announcements. There's a reason for that. It's so that we are focused entirely upon the acts of Holy Week. Each day this week, there's a collect in the back of the prayer book for to help us focus on who Jesus is. So if you have a prayer book, look at those and, and look at them each day. Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, Holy Wednesday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday. And let us come at the end of this to an Easter of greater joy because we understand the cost and the love. That's point number one for you this week. Point number two in that understanding. Friends, I bid you, lament your sins. Lament your sins. See what they have done to Jesus. There's not no connection here. There's a great connection between our sins nailing him to the cross. Between our sins, which have caused him to suffer in this way. He does it out of his love, but we if we persist in our sinful ways, if we keep doing the things that we ought not to do in disobedience to Him, that's a grave insult to His passion. That's a grave insult to His passion. And it shows that we don't understand His love at all. Because if we don't lament our sins, then we're just as bad as the high priest and as just as bad as those shouting out, crucify him. Of course, we know theologically that we're just as bad as those people anyway because we're sinners. But particularly with our own sins that we do and do not do, we partake in this passion which stands outside of time in history even though it is a historical event. He paid that price completely for those things in addition to for our sinfulness. And so the end goal of Holy Week is indeed a great one. It's that we might come to share in his resurrection more by understanding this. So as we go forward into this week, friends, let this week not just pass as any other week or perhaps even as Holy Weeks before because you are in a different place this year than you ever were before. And so let this Holy Week sanctify you in a way that's new and different, in a way that the Holy Spirit is using to make you more like Jesus. That you might enter into his suffering and agony. He drank the whole cup of suffering. Let us take a few sips. He paid the whole price, completely, out of love, let us respond to that in lamenting our sins and turning to him with all that we are. That we may indeed rise on Easter morning to a new reality of resurrection and victory in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.